picture that can be found on the back of our bulletin. We are starting a new series, uh, if you looked at the front page of our bulletin, called God Our Father, a fresh look at what it means to be a child of God. So over the next, I don't know how many weeks, we're going to be looking at the fatherhood of God. And uh, so I have picked a passage uh, that deals with um, the fatherhood of God. So this is John 1, 9 through 13. John 1, 9 through 13. Speaking of Jesus Christ. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to talk about the fatherhood of God, and that's an important part of Christianity. See, Christianity is unique from any other uh, religion out there, really in many aspects, but two primary aspects. The first is that in Christianity, we are saved uh, not by following the advice of the founder, but by the founder himself, uh, by Jesus Christ, where every other religion, you're saved by following the advice of the founder. They tell you things you need to do in order to be saved. But the second unique thing about Christianity is the concept of viewing God as our father in terms of in a personal relationship. That is something that is alien to any other uh, religion and faith out there. Uh, if you were to suggest such a concept in Islam, it actually would be, would be viewed as uh, uh, insulting and heretical. It's actually against the tenets of Islam. Uh, if you were to bring up this concept to a Hindu, they also would scoff at you, or a Buddhist. Even in Judaism, uh, there is no reference uh, until from the beginning of Judaism all the way to the 10th century after Christ, there is no reference of anyone referring to God as Father in a personal, intimate sense, except for one Jewish rabbi whose name was Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and spoke of God, he always referred to him as his father. In fact, 189 times in the Gospels alone, we see Jesus referring to God as his father. It was this very thing that prompted the Jewish people to want to kill Jesus because he was referring to God as father and himself as son, thus equating himself as equal to God. Jesus not only referred to God as Father, but even more amazingly, he taught us, he taught his followers and disciples to also refer to God as their Heavenly Father. Indeed, what is uh, the Lord's Prayer when they came to Jesus and they asked, how should we pray? He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus was seeking to get across to us that we too can also call God our Father. Now why is this important? I think it's important for two reasons. The first is 
what Jesus is communicating to us is that the deepest need of our heart is to have God as our Father, to be in a relationship with the God of the universe, and to be able to call Him and to know Him as Father. The second reason it's why it's so important is this, that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. I'll say it again. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. See, what you think about when you think about God determines how you relate to God. And from that flows everything. How you live your life. How you interact with other people. How you think about the future. And so what is the most important thing about you when you think about God? Jesus wants it to be that God is our Father. This sermon and this passage is about this unbelievable fact that God can be our Father. Now some of you might say, well, isn't God everyone's Father? And the answer is no. That might be surprising to you. And I'm going to talk about that. And, but we can see that very clearly from this passage because what it says is to those who believed him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So we're going to look at three particular uh, uh, topics as we unpack this concept. Number one, why we need God as our Father. Why do we need God as our Father? Why not something else? Number two, what does it mean to become a child of God? And finally, number three, how do we become a child of God? How do, how do we do that? Because the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Well, let's begin with my first point, why we need God as our Father. This passage comes from the beginning of the Gospel of John. And if you'll remember in the beginning, the very first verse, it talks about the fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is referred to as the Word. Why is He the Word? Well, He is the Word because He is the one who expresses what God is like. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's God made visible and manifest to us. And so verse 9 here says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is referred to as the light that is coming into a place of darkness. The world is described as a place where people are living in darkness, where they are blind, where they cannot see. And so the purpose of light, of course, is to always reveal. And so Jesus has come for two reasons. The first is to reveal the Father. In Luke 10.22, Jesus put it this way, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus has come to reveal the Father to specific people. 
And it makes perfect sense that it would be Jesus who would do this because he is the image of God. Jesus once had an interaction with one of his disciples, Philip, where Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, Jesus wasn't the Father, but because he was in the image of the Father, to see Jesus is to see the Father as well. Jesus came to reveal the Father, but Jesus also came so that he could show the way that you and I could also call God our Father. Now, again, I bring up the point isn't, where people say, isn't God everyone's Father? The answer is no. That's not in the Bible. Really, the closest passage where you could glean such a thing would be Acts 17.28, when uh, Paul is speaking uh, uh, to the Greeks, and he brings up uh, a quote by one of the Greek poets that says, we are his offspring. In other words, humans are the offspring of God. But he's not referring to uh, them in, in uh, us in such a sense as a father and son, but rather a a creature and a creator. We are his offspring in the sense that God has made us. We are his, uh, he is our creator and we are his creature. But very clearly, look at John 1.11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Again, he's referring to Jesus came to his dominion. He came to those who are his by right because he made them. So where did this idea come from that God is everyone's father, if not from the scriptures? Really came in the 1800s with a group of liberal scholars who sought to redefine the Bible and boil it down to its essence and cut and paste, and they came up with this concept of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. But the Bible doesn't teach the universal brotherhood of man. It teaches the universal neighborhood of man, doesn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. I think that was the reason that I chose this passage in John 8.34 that was read earlier uh, in, uh, during the praying the scriptures where Jesus is speaking to people who are not following uh, Jesus, recognizing him. And he says this, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And these Jewish people said, time out. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do, be doing the works as Abraham did. But you are doing the works your father did. They said, no, 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 we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. In other words, your father isn't God. You don't recognize me. You're not following me. What does that indicate and show that your father is not God, but rather your father is the devil? Now, that's anathema and insulting to people. 
But don't shoot the messenger. I'm just sharing what Jesus is sharing here. Rather, the scripture says that we do not start out as children of God, but rather children of wrath and children of the devil. And that's why in verse 11, it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And surely that is a picture of the world, is it not? It seems there's no character that is more reviled or displaced than Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is look at our uh, tradition of Christmas in America, and we see that, right? It seems that we are headlong in doing everything we can to push Jesus as far out of the picture as possible. Yet the name of the holiday is Christmas, because he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to those he made, and yet his own did not receive him. But there's a wonderful but here in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, it's very interesting. If you look at the Bible, there are many, many different names of God. But the final God, the final name that God wants to be known as is Father, right? God the Father God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He wants to be known as Father. Why does he want that to be the title that we know and relate to him as? I mean, it's certainly God, God is the king, to be sure. God is the ruler of the universe. We could use that title. He is the God of justice, or the Alpha and the Omega. He's a God who's steadfast, and faithful and righteous. He's immortal and invisible, the only wise God. I could go on and on and on. So why Father? The reason he wants to be known as Father is because Father takes all of these attributes of God and holds them together and applies them to us. He's not only a God of justice if he's our father, he's just to us and for us. He's not only immortal and the only wise God, but he's a wise father who can give us wisdom and counsel and watch over us. See, the name father answers the question of our heart. Yes, I know that you exist and I know that you made me. But are you for me? Are all that you are and all that you have, is it for me? Now, we know the importance of earthly fathers, do we not? There's been a tremendous amount of studies done on the importance of earthly fathers and the father absence crisis in America. Right now, one in four uh, children does not grow up with a father in the household. The statistics tell us this, that, that if you do not grow up with a father, if there's not a father in your life, you have a four times of a greater risk of poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, more likely to have behavioral problems, to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, 
twice more likely to suffer obesity, twice more likely to drop out of high school, more likely to commit violent crime, and it goes on and on and on. And if these statistics uh, play themselves out with the absence of an earthly father, imagine what that means with the absence of our heavenly father, the one that made us. Now, why is a father so important in the life of a child? I'm still speaking from an earthly perspective, giving the analogy. Why, what, why not the mother? The reason is from the father is where we receive acceptance, praise, and validation. See, the way God has hardwired the human species is that the mother has to be for you. Right? Otherwise, if the mother was like the father, everybody might die. <laughs> right? Are you with me? Mom's for you no matter what. If you go visit a prison and, you, and talk to many of the people in prison, they still would say, I have a good relationship with my mom. Almost to a T, they would say, I hate my father or I do not know my father. Because hardwired into the species is your mom has to be for you if only for the survival of the species, and thank goodness for that and for our mothers. But the father can walk, can't he? As he did, as we see with the statistic right now, of 25% of homes have no father. And so the question can really be answered, or has to be answered, as a child looks at a father, will you receive me? The message of boys growing up as they look to their father is this, am I enough? Do I have what it takes? And everyone else can give you an answer, but the answer that matters the most is from the father, right? That's why when you're on the soccer field and you do something as a kid, you look over and say, did you see what I just did? The message that comes from girls and teenage girls is this. Am I worthy of being cherished? Am I cherishable? Am I wanted? Am I cared for? Do you see me and value me? And if this is the deep message that every single human needs answered by an earthly father, how much more so than a heavenly father? See, what each one of us is looking for and needs is for God to see us and to receive us as a son or a daughter. Nothing else will do. Whether it's the adulation of the entire world, it still doesn't matter. I don't know if you've seen this movie, The, the Greatest Showman. Great movie. Uh, recommend you see it if you don't, but it's the story of P.T. Barnum and how he started, you know, the circus and so forth. And Barnum's played by Hugh Jackman. And uh, uh, Barnum, uh, in this interaction, uh, meets a very famous opera singer whose name is Jenny Lind. And Jenny Lind, uh, despite all her talents and all her abilities and all her beauty, is empty inside. And so she sees P.T. Barnum, and she decides that this man is the one who will complete me. He is the one that I've been looking for that will make the emptiness in, in, my, uh, in my soul go away. And so 
uh, she sings this song, which I'm going to sing to you right now. <laughs> but it, it's a song called Never Enough. And it's this beautiful song. I'll read the lyrics to you right now. But she, uh, she's, it's, uh, the song says this, that she says, I'm trying to hold my breath and let it stay this way. I cannot let this moment end. For you have set off a dream in me, and it's getting louder now. Take my hand, will you share this with me? Because, darling, without you, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars that we steal from the night sky will never be enough. They'll never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. Jenny Lind is quite right that the shine of a thousand spotlights will never be enough and towers of gold will never be enough. But neither will P.T. Barnum, will he? For all of her hopes are dashed when this person that she's set her affections and hopes on cannot, she cannot have him. The song is right, but it should be placed on the one person that can be enough for us. And it is our Heavenly Father. So where do you go for validation? Is it the shine of a thousand spotlights? The adulation of the world? That if I accomplish enough, that if enough people see me, that they will validate me and the emptiness in my soul will be filled? Is it towers of gold? If I just have more and more and more, then finally this gnawing emptiness in my soul will be filled. All the P.T. Barnums in the world will never, ever, ever be enough. Because without the Father, you are not enough. Without his approval and his stamp on your life, the only future you will have is that of emptiness and dissatisfaction. Because the one thing we cannot live without is the approval of our Heavenly Father. This brings me to my second point. Well, what does it mean to become a child of God if this promise is held forth in the scriptures? If indeed we are not born as a child of God, but rather as a child of wrath, the good news of the gospel is that we can become a child of God. As verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now I want to draw one word because this is important. It doesn't say, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Does it? It says he gave the right to become children of God. And there's quite a difference between being called a child of God and becoming a child of God. We have the distinct privilege and honor to adopt a child into our family. And when all the paperwork was done and everything was signed and so forth, we were able to bring her into our family. She was called our child because there was a change in status. But we didn't have the ability to go into her very DNA, if you will, and to change her 
Now, we didn't have to because it's one imperfect human being added into an imperfect family of humans. But to become a child of God is an entirely different matter, isn't it? It's a whole different step, if you will. It's not enough to be called a child of God. We need to become a child of God. See, the problem before was that we didn't want God because there is something desperately wrong with our hearts. In order to become a child of God, I need a new heart. I need a new bent, if you will, a new nature within me that is like the nature of my father. I also need a new record. See, it's perfectly fine for our daughter to become a child of our family because she's an imperfect person with an imperfect record being joined to a family of the same. But the reality that we understand is that of ourselves, we don't deserve to be called children of God. Now we need a new heart and a new record. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in. Here are these words from Ephesians 2.1. As for you and me, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. In other words, you followed your father, the devil, and you were just like him. You were, by nature, an object of wrath. Now, it look, may look all shiny and pretty on the outside, but when you get into the motivations and our hearts, by nature, you are objects of wrath. But listen to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, it's God who has done this work in your life, if you are a Christian who has taken something dead and made it alive together with Christ. Notice those words. He didn't just make you alive. That's not possible. He made you alive together with Christ. Now that is possible because Jesus is the one who qualifies us to become a child of God. See, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to be a substitute for us. Jesus not only died for us, but first, he lived for us. He lived a perfect, obedient life, never sinning once in his 33 years upon this earth. And then Jesus died on the cross. 
And when we, if you are a believer, have been made alive with Christ, God transferred that record of a perfect life to you. And he transferred all of those sins that you have committed, that you are committing, and that you will commit onto him. So that we might be seen as having lived a perfect life and being qualified to become a child of God. See, Christianity is not about reformation. It's not about getting your act together. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about transformation. Christianity is not sort of getting into a better position. And that's why this passage in the Bible tells us that we must be reborn. Right? It says, But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born again into the family of God, not of blood, meaning not of your heritage, like these Jews that said we were Abraham's father, thus were qualified, not by will of the flesh, meaning not by the normal way that children are born by procreation, or even of the will of man, not by my decision to turn over a new leaf, to start doing the right things, to stop doing bad and start doing good, but rather this is a birth of God. Something that God has done in your life. It's something that only God can do in your life. It's God who decides. I don't know anyone who ever made a decision for themselves to be born. Right? I think I want to be born. I think I want to exist. It was a decision of the parents, wasn't it? And that's what the scripture is saying. So what does all of this mean? It means to, to the Christian, we don't simply get to start calling him father. It means that he is our father. I don't know if you ever get a new, uh, you know, when you get a new pair of pants or you get a new jacket or something like that and you reach into the pocket and sometimes you pull out this little piece of paper. You wonder, what's this piece of paper, right? And you open it up and it says, inspected and approved by 11 or something. Or if they really are serious about you know, putting their name on it, they'll actually write the name of the person that inspected this and approved it. In other words, it's worthy to carry our brand. It's worthy to go out in the world and for everyone to see who made this pair of pants, who it belongs to. We're going to stamp our name on it we're going to put our warranty behind it. That's really what's going on here with Jesus Christ taking a child of wrath, applying his flesh and blood, his actions to us. So that when God reaches into the pocket and opens it up, it's inspected and approved. I can put my name on it. We don't simply get to call him father. He is our father. And there's only one way. 
Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. In other words, unless you, you have to apply my life and what I've done to you in order to become this. But if you do, as God is my father, God is also your father. So have you done so? Is he your father? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Because if you have done so, you don't only get to call him father, he is your father. And so when you look up at the night sky and you see the beautiful palette of orange and purple and blue, when you walk out to the ocean front and you see the vast reaches of the ocean and the waves rolling in, you can say with confidence, my dad did that. When you have no wisdom and you don't know what to do in your life, you can call out to my dad, who has all the wisdom in the world and can guide me. When you're lost, you can call out to my dad because he knows the way. And when you have no hope, you can call out to my dad because he brings hope to the hopeless. He knows the way when there is no way. You can call him dad because he is. This brings me to my final point. I only have a couple more minutes. How do we become a child of God? I'm not foolish enough to not know that there are some people who are in this congregation right now who are not yet children of God. I was not until I was 18 years old. Didn't hear the gospel and believe it and understand it until then. I love this passage because it teaches us what it means and how we become a child of God. Notice in verse 12, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But, who all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Two key words, receiving and believing. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name. What do those words mean? Receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is. In other words, we don't get to take Jesus and sort of shape him into a Jesus that is palatable, palatable to us, who demands nothing of us, doesn't require us to really do anything different. We cannot warp him, if you will, into an image that we like, for he is Lord and King. And he is in charge. We were made by him and we were made for him. And so he is both king and he is savior. Jesus put it this way. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, receiving Jesus is quite simple. All you have to do is die. You have to say, my will, my ways, it's not enough. I want to follow your will and your ways. For you know better, do you not? I was made in your image. And so I'm willing to let go of all that I have and all that I want to have you instead. 
That's receiving him for what he is and who he is. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name. What does it mean to believe in him? John 6.35 put it this way. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What this verse is teaching us is that believing in Jesus means choosing to be satisfied in Jesus. To believe in him means you're the one I'm looking for. You're the one who can satisfy my heart. In every single person's heart, there is a throne that we have to put something on. Because we are a derived creation, we must worship something. And we worship something that we believe will bring us satisfaction. So to believe in Jesus is to say, you are, you are the thing I'm going to put above all things. You are the thing that I'm going to seek. Because in you is where I believe I will find satisfaction. So to paraphrase, to believe and receive in Jesus is this. But to all who receive Jesus into their lives for who he really is and who feed upon him as the all-satisfying bread of life, he gave the authority to become children of God. It's not our education, not our upbringing, not our deep religious knowledge even. But what it takes is our will. You're who I want. And it says to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. That means anyone. It means you. It means me. The choice is in our hands. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. So when you think about God, who do you see? No one? Maybe a disinterested figure, whoever he is, sort of maybe birthed me and took off, and I don't have any time for him, because he certainly doesn't have any time for me. A weak, impotent, grandfatherly type figure who just smiles at me but really can't do anything about my life. Or he's my father. The one who loves me. The one who's the creator of the universe. And the one who's there for me and will be there for me every second of the way. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't walk out of here before having made that decision. You're the one I want. And the privilege and blessing of the fatherhood of God can be yours today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Father, Thank you that though I was lost in sin, you found me. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only died for me, you lived for me. That I could be born again, seen by you, my heavenly Father, just like you look at Jesus. I pray that that would be 
the desire and the destiny for every single person who can hear my voice today. Pray all of this in Christ's name.